Parenting is a very hard place to get your identity. <laughs> now, why would I even make that statement? Whether we like it or not, whether we're cognizant of it or not, we tend as parents to try to get some measure of our identity, some measure of encouragement that we are a success based on our parenting. Or conversely, we could feel like a big loser <laughs> based on our parenting, right? But I think the point is whether success or failure, parenting is a very difficult place to find our identity. So we want to, as a result of that truth, because we all know the truth of our identity resting in Christ alone. And if we pull back and we take a heart check, we might realize, oh my gosh, the reason I'm so uptight about this is because I have a measure of my identity attached to this. We talked last week about reputation, right? One of the reasons we do avoidance parenting, whether it's permissive or authoritarian, is because our reputation is in some respect attached to our parenting, to the outcome of our parenting, which is how did my kid turn out in the end, right? And I have friends who have come to me who, because their kids took a tangent or a detour as they hit their young adult years and it didn't look the way that they had thought it would look, planned for it to look, hoped it would look, prayed it would look, their identity got shaken. And realizing then something that they wish they would have realized when the child was younger, which is, I cannot attach my identity to my parenting success. So... We want to cut that right now. We want to cut it off of us and give ourselves the freedom to chase after godly parenting without tying our identity to the end result of what that looks like. Why? Why is that important? Our kids have free will. So we can pour our lives and our hearts and be as intentional as we possibly can be, led by the Holy Spirit, doing all the things, checking all the boxes, and our kids still have free will at the end of the day. So what I want to make sure we talk about here is that what we're discussing and the books that we encourage you to read and all of those things, those are no guarantee that your child is going to end up being that perfect child that you have in your head. <laughs> and it shouldn't be a guarantee because of free will, because of that precious price gift of free will that we want to honor, right? Because it's God-given. But we will intentionally invest in our children so that at some point when the light bulb comes back on, no matter where they're at, they will circle back around and they will say, as has happened with our children, wow, the things you taught me, I can't get away from those things. I can't get away from those things. I can't believe what you invested in my life. I just, I had a texting conversation with Landon last week. I was texting him some encouragement and his response to me was, mom, you're the best mom ever. I was an idiot back then. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I, I didn't say it. He did. Um, <laughs> no, he was not an idiot. Um, but I had actually texted him an old blog of mine that I had written years ago when he was in junior high. And it was about this wrestle that we had at the kitchen table over algebra for hours. And I sent it to him and he just immediately just showered me with all this love. And so I, I want you guys to know no matter where the journey takes you, what you invest in their hearts will bear fruit. Some kids have more of that thing in them of they have to do it the hard way. Mm -hmm. They have to do it their own way, mm -hmm. right? I did it my <laughs> way. And I think that that's just the way some of us are wired. That's the way some of us are wired. Mm -hmm. And so remember that we've said this. <laughs> and that that's not an indictment. Yeah against you as a parent yeah. or your parenting style. It yeah. doesn't mean we're saying, you did it perfectly. Yeah. You executed <clears throat> it flawlessly. No, you're going to make tons of mistakes. But the overarching principle is we love God mm -hmm. and we're sowing the truth and faith into our kids' hearts. Mm -hmm. And yes, we're going to make mistakes along the way. Praise God if that doesn't happen to you. Mm -hmm. But praise God that it's not about you mm -hmm. if it does. Yeah. 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 Going back to that word investing, we're investing. Usually when we, we make an investment, right, we invest for the long term. Most short-term investments are 
a little bit riskier, <laughs> right? So we want to try to think about how can we invest our money for the long term? Parenting is the same way we invest for the long term. Last week, we talked about the 18 year factor that we think in of, you know, culturally speaking, we've got 18 years. So we're thinking a long term investment here. So if we want to lay a foundation for our investment so that we invest well, one of the first things that Chris and I feel like is a priority is understanding your child's love language. I know most of you have probably either heard of or read Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. You may not have read your child's love languages. I think they have a teen version and a child version. But the reason this is important is as we invest, we want our investment to bring us the greatest return, right? That's what anybody expects when they make an investment. And part of that foundation laying process of knowing what your child's love language, primary, secondary, doesn't really matter, and speaking that love language actively on a daily or weekly basis is it is going to be one of the keys to bringing the greatest return on your parenting investment. Mm -hmm. Because the more loved your child tangibly feels, the more they will respond positively to what you are investing in them. Whether it's discipline, correction, training, or just character formation and discipling their hearts. It doesn't matter what part of the process you're inputting. They will respond like a little sponge if they feel they're already saturated with love. So we would encourage you to take some time this week to dive into those five love languages. So if you don't remember, physical touch, quality time acts of service, gift giving, and words of encouragement. So just to be clear, not having spankings is not a love language. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And remember yeah. that kids in general want all five, right? It's not like a three-year-old is only going to want physical touch. That's not how a kid is wired. A kid loves to get all five. But as they get older, as they hit five, six, seven, eight, you'll begin to see maybe one or two of them kind of rise to the surface. It's hard to look at a two or three-year-old and say, oh, that's their love language because everything that they receive in those five makes them feel happy. But I would encourage you guys, yeah, begin to look. If you haven't done with each other as spouses, do that first, but then look and ask the Lord for wisdom regarding your child's love languages. And then one of the things that we encouraged parents to do is to put on your fridge or somewhere that your whole family is going to see what everybody's primary love language is in the family. Yeah. Just as a daily reminder that as you're walking by the fridge, as you're in the bathroom or wherever you decide to post it, you just get that quick reminder. Oh yeah, Taylor really loves... Words of affirmation. Words of affirmation. <laughs> Again, this is part of that foundation laying. Part of making a wise investment is getting that solid rock foundation of love going on in the family in an active, tangible way. Mm -hmm. And remember that sometimes how we speak our love language is different than how we receive it. For instance, I start giving Kate gifts thinking, okay, I'm going to be speaking her love language, but Kate really loves to give gifts, but maybe receiving gifts doesn't mean as much to her. She likes to speak it, but receiving isn't as meaningful. So be aware of that, that there can be that differentiation too. When they're you often connected, but they, when they're not, you could be really wasting a lot of time Yeah, and, and money. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to talk for a minute about your child's love bank in their heart. You are either making deposits or making withdrawals. Yeah. So you need to be cognizant of that because if your child is going through a season where all of a sudden they start acting out and you're having more disciplinary issues with them and you feel like, gosh, I, I, I'm beating my head against a wall. Why is this kid not getting this? I feel like I'm either disciplining them all the time or we're having hard conversations all the time. It could possibly be that their love bank is very low because there've been a lot of withdrawals, a lot of discipline, a lot of hard stuff, a lot of conflict, maybe parental conflict, parental child conflict. So be aware that it, it's important to keep a gauge, even just kind of emotionally have a sense of where your child is at in that so that you can continue to make those deposits, especially in a season where there have been a lot of withdrawals. All right. We're going to talk about standards tonight. Yeah, we're talking about the idea of bringing our kids to the standard. 
and the concept is pretty simple and straightforward, but we need to talk about it a little bit because a lot of parents have varying standards in their homes because of the different personalities of the kids. That shouldn't be. The different personalities should impact how you get them to the standard, not what the standard is. So, for example, you have a very shy child and somebody comes up to that child on Sunday and says, wow, your dress is so pretty. And that child just hides behind mom. And the parent says, I'm sorry, she's very shy. This is a classic example of bending the standard to personality. So the standard is respect and honor. The standard is basic communication skills. Those are the standards, and every child must meet those standards. But because you have a shy child, you've got to work in a different manner and extra intentionality with that child with regard to that particular standard, Mm -hmm. right? So you could say something like, we're working on this. But ahead of time, you're you're intentionally training into the child when so-and-so says hello to you or when somebody compliments you, you're going to need to say this or that and then there needs to be consequences if it doesn't happen, etc. Because standards don't change. But we do need to be flexible as parents regarding how we get our kids to the standard. There will be other kids in your quiver who don't even need encouragement or training regarding greeting people. They probably They're have gregarious, the problem. They can't right? be quiet. A, a gregarious personality <laughs> and somebody who's coming up to everybody and saying hi. And so that standard doesn't change, mm-hmm. but how we train our kids does. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about standards, that's under the subheading of family guidelines, mm-hmm. rules and commands, mm-hmm. etc. like mm-hmm. we see talked about in scripture. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us come from a background where that is a turnoff to us, that very concept. Mm-hmm. And we would rather just kind of make it up as we go. Mm-hmm. There's a couple problems with that. But the thing that I want to mention about the benefit to rules in the home is that rules actually bring a sense of safety to a child's heart. How many have been down to Coronado Island? One of my favorite bridges is the Coronado Island Bridge. And it was actually one of the very first curving bridges ever built in the world. And it was an engineer who came up with that idea because it had to reach a really great height so that the Navy ships could get underneath it. And it's a short space. So the answer is get more track on there and do that through a curve. Every kid that grew up with Hot Wheels knows that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's this beautiful bridge and you go up over the bridge and and get to Coronado Island. When When you get to the top, you're looking at Hotel Del Coronado. So you come right off the five freeway onto that bridge. And it's 55 miles an hour. Now, I want you to imagine that same bridge, everything identical, same circumstances. You're in the same car, same speed, but there's no guardrails. They're just suddenly gone. You'd have people stopping, not willing to go over. Nothing's changed. Yeah. You still have the same amount of space on the road. Actually, a little bit more space. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit more, yeah. Living on the edge. It's the guardrails that promote a sense of security and safety. It's the same thing with our kids and rules and commands and household standards. Mm -hmm. They may not like the standard. They may even complain about the standard. But the truth is, deep inside their heart, it brings them a sense of safety. Mm -hmm. Those standards are actually lifesavers for us as parents also. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about this last week, the idea that without those standards, we tend to parent out of emotion. Mm -hmm. And then that ends up with kids trying to second guess, is he in a good mood now? Is she in a bad mood now? Can I get away with this? Mm -hmm. Will I get spanked for this? Mm -hmm. Will I not? Mm -hmm. And it's because it's emotion-based parenting Mm -hmm. instead of we we have standards. We have standards of behavior Mm -hmm. and we have standards of consequences yes, discipline mm-hmm. discipline for those behavior mm-hmm. there it is there's the standards mm-hmm. 
It's not about my mood. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the positive side of standards, and, and we're going to compare this, in a sense, to a warehouse. So think about Costco. Imagine Costco as an empty shell as far as there's no product in it, but you walk in and you see all these shelves, right? You know how they stack things up to the ceiling in Costco. That warehouse with no product in it, but all those empty shelves is your child's heart. And when that child is born and placed in your arms, you're essentially handed an empty Costco warehouse. And what your job is as a parent is to place in that warehouse, on that shelving, all of these morals, all of these godly principles, all of these standards that the Word of God lays out so that when your child, whether they're 2 or 20, comes up against a real-life situation and they have to make a moral decision, what happens in that moment in their heart is they search through the shelves of their warehouse. Is there anything that's been placed in my moral warehouse that I can pull on and draw on in order to help me make this decision? So our job as parents is to fill those shelves with God's principles, with his word, right? That's our standard. We talked about that last week. We fill those those shelves with his word so that when they have to make a decision, they have something to draw on. Now, let me give you an example. And this example was given to us the first time we ever took the parenting class that we alluded to last week. And the first time I ever heard it, it was like one of those light bulb moments, like, oh my gosh, for me. So you and your child walk onto a bus. You sit down in the bus, you ride to the next stop, door opens up, and onto the bus comes this elderly woman. And there's no seats left on the bus. At that moment, there is a moral decision to be made. Whether you realize it or not, there is. Because God's word in Deuteronomy says, rise to show honor to the gray-headed. So in that moment, One, they could be completely oblivious. Why? Because that value has never been placed in their heart. So they are not acting on it because it's not there. Two, the value is there and they choose not to act on it, right? So they either need some encouragement from mom or dad or a reminder or maybe depending on how well you've been working on this and how much this has been an issue of training, they might end up having to have consequences, right? Or three... Because they search through that moral warehouse and they see it there and they choose to obey what's been placed in their heart as the Holy Spirit prompts them, they get up and they say, please take my seat. It would be an honor for me to give my seat to you. Okay, That's a little tiny example of the multitude of deposits that the Father is asking us to partner with Him to place into our children's heart. Let me give you another example. So you're walking through the park and there's these beautiful flowers in the park. And it really doesn't matter if they're wildflowers or planted. There's just these beautiful flowers. And of course, every two, three-year-old wants to pick the flowers, right? Because they're so pretty and that's so fun. But in that moment when they go to pick the flower, mom and dad have an opportunity to put a deposit into their heart. And here's the deposit that can be made. That is so pretty so beautiful the way the Lord has made that flower. But if we pick the flower, everyone who comes behind us to enjoy the park will not get to enjoy the beauty of that flower. And if everyone who comes to the park picks flowers, then there will be no more flowers for everybody to enjoy. We're talking about big principle values. And in this case, the big principle value that starts with something super tiny and seemingly insignificant is what does it look like to honor others above ourselves? What does it look like to pick my trash up off the street instead of letting it lie? What does it look like to take my cart back to the cart thingy? Right. So, and and when Chris and I first began to chew on this, I think what we began to realize is that as amazing, truly amazing as both sets of our parents were, there were even some gaps there because I, I knew for me, because my 
environment in my home had been more on the authoritarian side. It was more like, just do what I say, you know, perform well, do what I say and everything will go great. And I didn't have these deposits made of what does it look like to live out of honor for others? What does it look like to lay down my life for others so I can be a blessing to others, so I can be a blessing to the kingdom, so I can demonstrate the kingdom to everybody around me? That wasn't deposited in my heart. I just knew I had to toe the line. And if I didn't toe the line, it was going to be bad news for me. So when Chris and I first started chewing on all this, we're like, oh my gosh, there's so many things in our own hearts that aren't even there that weren't even put there. So we're going to have to choose to ask the Holy Spirit to deposit them in our own hearts first so that we'll even be able to teach them to our children. As we deposit things morally into that warehouse, we're talking about the Word of God Mm -hmm. and that being the standard in the home. Mm -hmm. And that assumes something. Mm -hmm. It assumes that we as parents are familiar with the Word. Mm Mm-hmm. It assumes that we as parents are actively engaged mm-hmm. in the Word. Mm-hmm. Not that we know everything about the Word, but that that's our pursuit mm-hmm. and that it continues to be a lifelong pursuit. Mm-hmm. That's a starting assumption mm-hmm. in this as we pour this into our kids. Mm-hmm. In our early parenting years, I brought into the parenting skill set <laughs> there, I brought this concept that shame was an important part of the consequence process. And that's what I was raised in. Mm-hmm. So there had to be some measure of shame there. Otherwise, the consequence was not effective. Mm-hmm. That's something that I carried in. And I believed that and we would have conversations about that. And then when we got on the same page about this and realized what the Word of God means with respect to honor and how that has to be part of our discipline process mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. I realized I am wrong. Mm. That is not a biblical way to bring consequences into my kid's life. Mm -hmm. So there will be these Mm -hmm. micro adjustments Mm -hmm. along the way as we recognize the truth of scripture in contrast to how we want to parent. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And remember, we, we cannot expect our kids to live out something that we don't ourselves model. Yeah. You know, so if we could do all the talking we want to about how we honor, we honor, we honor others. But if we cut somebody off on the freeway and they're in the car with us and we don't think a second thought about it, what are we really saying about honor? If we're, you know, like that person who just drove next to me and did whatever, you know, and and yet we're trying to teach our children to be kind and to speak life, words of life over others. What are we really saying? Mm -hmm. And so we have to remember that as we are choosing intentionally to invest in our children's hearts, priceless investments of the word and the wisdom that comes out of living based on the word of God, Mm -hmm. we have to constantly evaluate ourselves and say, am I demonstrating? And we're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes all the time. But the point is, are we chasing after this? Are we running after this? Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to read a scripture that you guys are all familiar with, but I think it really is the foundational jumping off point for all of this depositing into our kids' moral warehouse. And it's Deuteronomy 11, 18 through 21. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them while you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. So I love the fact that Moses starts with, hey, parents, these things have to be in your heart first. And then you have to constantly be talking of them, whether you're sitting down, walking, going to bed, getting up. It doesn't matter. Whatever you're doing, you just talk about it. You're always talking about it. And when Chris and I really began to grab hold of this, we began to realize, okay, 
That's the crux of parenting. It's not that I discipline my child or, you know, I I take them to activities or whatever it may be. The crux is I disciple their heart. I disciple their heart by the daily interaction of let's talk about the goodness of God when we go on a walk and we see the beauty of the sky. Let's talk about the grace of God when we've had to have consequences and yet we see that grace covers all of our sin. Let's talk about the forgiveness of God when we have to forgive our, I mean, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're always talking. You're always discipling their hearts. And to be honest, you guys, it can feel exhausting. This is what intentional parenting is, is it's that constant investment of your own self into your child's heart so that they get the full warehouse, the full warehouse. And are you going to miss things? Absolutely. Are they going to have gaps? Yes. But the point is I give myself, I spend myself for the sake of discipling my child's heart. Mm -hmm. And that's a full-time investment. It's a full-time job. I know that, um, Chris, you have shared with Luke and I specifically that one key that you would do with homeschooling is you would have Bible time with them Mm -hmm. intentionally in the morning and you would work your way through Proverbs and you would ask them questions. Did you ever just as a couple or individually go, I'm going to study this and I'm going to pull my kids in? Pull them into what we, like we we personally were studying? At the same time. That's a great question. Um, it's interesting perspective and to be truthful, no, I don't think it was ever that way because we were on a specific cycle, I'll say, with regards to Bible for the kids. Okay. There was Old Testament, New Testament, and memorization. Okay. And so we were kind of on this continual track of that happening. And I'd get input from Tiffany on what do you think are some of the most important scriptures to memorize? And we would work on those. And our personal study time that happens in our quiet time mm-hmm. is not cyclical. Yeah. It's not patterned. It's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit more organic, mm-hmm. but it's a, fabulous it's a great idea. idea. Yeah. It's a fabulous idea. It's a great idea. Okay. One of the things that I think correlates with this based on what you've brought up, Kat, is that Chris intentionally, I mean, not every family has this freedom, but it could happen at any point during the day because he worked at home and we homeschooled, he would intentionally take breakfast time to be Bible time, like just after breakfast. And so they would read through scripture and discuss it. And then he would walk through memorization with them every day, every day they worked on memorizing passages of scripture. So they memorized whole chapters by the end of the semester, you know, they would memorize Isaiah 53 or first Corinthians 13 or, you know, different chapters of the Bible. And that was one way that we knew that we could accomplish part of this goal, which is getting the truth of scripture into their heart. I can't say that now that they could quote all of that to you, but we know that it's in there. Yeah. We know that it's in there. So, um, it was just one little tool and there's so many tools you can come up with again, like we talked about last week, tools, and tips and strategies are unique to each family. That was one tool that was unique to our family, but we feel like it had long-term fruit. I want to take a minute for couples to discuss and singles to kind of maybe make notes or you guys can discuss together. I want you to think about, first of all, where you're pulling your family standards from. Okay, so I want you to evaluate. Are you pulling your family standards from the way that your parents taught you? Maybe what your peers have said is important. Uh, child psychologists, education specialists. You know, there's so many different places we can pull our standards from. So I want you to think about that, evaluate that. And then I want you to think about each of your children and one area of character that you feel like needs to have input in their moral warehouse. Okay, something that you see in this child that you think, okay, we need to input a little bit more of truth into this area of their life so that they actually have more to draw from when they're wrestling through this area, when they're trying to make choices and decisions about this area, one area of their life that you see. So and this is for your own benefit. Yeah. That part won't be shared. So yeah. be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so break. You got two or three minutes to do this. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think that an exercise like this makes it abundantly clear how you need to spend time on this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can't possibly in a couple minutes figure things like this Mm -hmm. out, especially Mm -hmm. with 
Five. Five. <laughs> right? So you have to be intentional about this. Pray and into it. We mm-hmm. used to take date nights to mm-hmm. like workshop things mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. when we when that's all the time we had. Yeah. It's not the most romantic evening. <laughs> <laughs> but it is productive. <laughs> I guess maybe a practical question, but mm-hmm. so uh, you kind of mentioned like the standards should be the standard regardless of mm-hmm. that kind of, I guess the, the gist that I got from it is like, don't lower the bar. Mm-hmm. So one of our children has delays uh, mm-hmm. through no fault of her own mm-hmm. parent history. And it presents challenges yeah. that mm-hmm. might otherwise not be, I don't just curious if you guys have any input, right. she behaves different. She reacts differently mm-hmm. as, and, and it's been a lot of conversations, you know, um, how, how we parent that effectively. Yeah. You don't want to artificially lower the bar right. and not set her up, not challenge her for success, but at the same time, is it fair to completely have expectations um, that may not be realistic? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, That's a great question. Yeah, I think one of the important things to remember in a situation like that is that the bar, so to speak, is not necessarily the outward behavior. Mm-hmm. It will affect the outward behavior, but the bar is the root of the heart, what's happening in the heart. Mm-hmm. So as you focus on her heart and having her heart align with the truth of God's word, you will begin to see it impact her outward behavior, but it may not look the way mm-hmm. that your other daughters look. Mm-hmm. So I think giving her the grace for the outward manifestation of that to look different, but knowing that the standard of her heart has to be the same mm-hmm. will enable you to make those micro adjustments mm-hmm. for her that need to be made without having the standard be different than what the standard is for the other girls. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I definitely would encourage you for the two of you to pray into, okay, Lord, how will you give us revelation of her heart? Mm-hmm. What's happening in her heart? How we can train her heart in these areas so that she actually begins to grab hold of your truth and we see it manifesting, but it may not look exactly the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's really good. Getting to that standard is the long haul. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have some where it's going to be overnight and you're going to have some where you just have to set your sights on. We're going to get there. Mm -hmm. We're going to get there. It may not be this week or next week or next Mm -hmm. month Mm because the process is going to be different. And again, the most important thing being the heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so behavior is often a reflection of the heart, but in a case like that, it can be tricky. Mm -hmm. And you as mom and dad have to have great discernment Mm -hmm. as to what's actually going on in the heart versus the the outward behavior. There's going to be challenges between the kids if, you know, one child's measured at a standard And yeah. sometimes they have to do things together because there's partnership and things or and not everything can be totally, I understand what you guys said, but I still like, I think through that, it's like, there's still so much to that. Mm-hmm. That's really not easy. It's not easy. And I love how C.S. Lewis, <laughs> Lewis summed that up in the Narnian Chronicles in one simple phrase. That's not your story. Mm-hmm. So whenever one of the characters yeah. in Narnia would say, what about her? He'd say, that's not your story. As parents, you do have the right to also train into our kids the issues regarding jealousy, envy, coveting, etc., which all those things get stirred up whenever we have one of our kids that has a particular challenge in one area or another. And those are great opportunities to learn patience Mm -hmm. and not being jealous Mm -hmm. and not being envious and et cetera, Mm -hmm. and really helping them see that that's a real issue. And mom and I are working on that, but that's not your story. Mm -hmm. I think too, let's make it really practical. We used to have every other week, we would have a family house cleaning day. So every other Saturday, the whole family would clean the house. That's the only way we survived in the times Mm -hmm. when the years we were homeschooling. And so each child had jobs that they had to do that were age appropriate. Like for Landon, let's say he was three or four, his job might have been to take a little rag and go around the baseboards and wipe the baseboards, right? Because mm-hmm. they were at his height and that's what he could do, right? He was super short. <laughs> 
<laughs> but Jaron maybe had to mow the lawn or he had to uh, scrub the kitchen or sweep and mop all the floors. And again, depending on the size of the house, that would be a much bigger job. But I think what for Landon was difficult and hard work, for Jaron, it would have been a piece of cake, right? It would have taken him five minutes to, he's done. But for Landon, it took him 45 minutes to scoot on his little bottom and wipe all the baseboards while Jaron was out there mowing the whole lawn. And yet it was that age appropriateness of I'm working hard within my capabilities, within my age appropriateness, within what I'm able to function doing and helping the family. I mean, truthfully, more than age appropriate, it was maturity appropriate. Yeah. Again, going back to self-control, like we talked about last week, what they had the self-government to actually carry through to completion and be responsible for. So I think when it comes to that sibling tension that can come, especially when one has a, a greater challenge in an area, I think what we have to remind our kids about is this is more challenging for them. So the standard of helping in our household didn't change. Everybody was on board. It was an all hands on deck time, but each person helped differently because of what they were capable of doing. And I, I think reminding those siblings of because of the challenges the way she helps is going to look different, but it's just as hard for her to do this as it is for you to do that. That doesn't mean that the one who has the challenge gets off the hook. You know, it's got to be legitimately work in that kind of a situation, but it's going to look different. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on. We're always talking about discipleship issues. We're always talking about pouring into our kids' moral warehouse. If we don't have margin in our lives, we will whiz right past opportunities to deposit. We will miss the moments when they come and not realize that we miss them. So we have to create the margin in our lives to sit and have that conversation with our child when the opportunity arises. So Chris and I, when we were, I think, four years married, we read a book called Margin, and it changed our lives. And at that point, we became more intentional about creating margin in our lives. And it it served us well in regards to our children because we didn't overload our schedules and we allowed ourselves to have the time to live and to invest. And so I want to encourage us, like as a church family, let's live with margin. And so margin is just that space between what we have to do and what we get to do. It's, it's the buffer space and we want to have buffer space. We want to not be always going, going, going so that we don't have time to breathe. And that takes intentionality. And it's in those spaces, you guys, that most of our best parenting is done. Yeah. It's in those spaces. This is expensive. Yeah. This is probably the most expensive part of parenting. Mm-hmm. There's no way that you can build margin into your role without making sacrifices that actually affect you. Mm-hmm. So I, as I said, you know, it's those, those moments, those buffers of margin that, that our best parenting takes place. And tied into that is the idea that as we're discipling our children's hearts, the most powerful discipleship actually takes place in times of non-conflict not times of conflict. This is huge for me. This is huge for me. It it took me years to discipline myself to behave this way. And now I kind of err on... Waiting too long. (laughs) Waiting too long. But when I was in my younger parenting years, it was immediate. Everything was immediate. Now, I'm not talking about the fact that your kids disobey and they need immediate consequences. That's clear. For example... When you're setting up the table for dinner and Susie does something she's not supposed to do and blatantly disobeys and you've already established that that deserves a spanking, you don't want to say, after dinner, you're going to get a spanking. Little Susie needs a spanking right then, right there on the spot. You have to stop what you're doing. You have to get off of your agenda and go address that. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the parenting process investing, teaching, discipling. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work in times of conflict. You guys already know this. They're not paying attention. They don't care. Mm -hmm. They are angry. Mm -hmm. You are angry. (laughs) Is there an opportunity to, to pour into their little heart? Yes. Let's say you've got a two to seven year old. Yes. 
in that window. You're going to bring consequences and then immediately you're going to lavish them with love and then try to get a principle in there. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to discipleship, Mm -hmm. that's other times. Mm -hmm. So that's three days later on a walk Mm -hmm. when you say, Hey, do you remember when such and such happened the other day? Mm -hmm. They say, yeah, let's talk through that a little bit. Mm -hmm. This is most effective with preteens and teens. Mm Because in that moment of relational conflict, they are not going to have an open heart to receive what you have to say the way that you want them to. The best time to discuss the discipleship points that you want to pour into them is half a day, two days, three days later. You bring it back up and say, let's open that up. You know, how were you feeling in that moment? Why were you feeling that way? And there's some things I'd like to share with you about that. Can we talk about that? Again, you're wanting to look for that open window. And again, this is something Chris and I learned the hard way. There will be a time when your child's heart will open up like a window and you'll know it. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you will recognize they have a soft heart right now. They have a teachable heart. That window is open. I've got to take my opportunity right now. So forget about whatever you had planned. The movie that's waiting for you downstairs because all the kids are in bed. That's your moment. With my teens, with our teens, it was usually 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) So with with kids, and I'm talking like 3 to 10, it's often bedtime. Bedtime. We tend to rush right through that, and yet we're missing some of the best windows, some mm-hmm. of the best open opportunities. They'll ask you questions. So they'll, they'll be talk the, about you know, things. We might read a book real fast. We might say a prayer together real quick, or sing a song, or whatever your routine is, and then it's let's let's move on to the next thing. And right then, in that moment, more often than not, their little soul opens up, and you can visibly see. Mm-hmm. We have a moment here mm-hmm. together. Can I just ask what do you mean you learned that the hard way? We rush past it a lot of times or we didn't recognize it or we tried to force an open window when there wasn't one. I would think that probably happened more often with the two of us than not because we were very intentional. <laughs> we want, we were, okay, we got this Let's now. We need to be out. intentional. Yeah. We need organic times for them. It's very organic, yeah. yeah. And you'll see that, and that's why the concept of margin is so important because it is organic. It, it You cannot force the open window of their heart. It cannot be forced. You have to wait for it and watch for it. Mm-hmm. And when it opens up, you have to make the space for it. So and if you have a jam-packed schedule from 5 a.m. until 10 p.m., mm-hmm. this won't happen. Yeah. So the really great analogy in the book, Margin, that we mentioned is if you always leave for work just in time to get to work. What happens when you pass somebody on the side of the street trying to fix their car or whatever, and you think to yourself, Lord, bless that person as you speed by instead of actually I'm the person. Time, you know? <laughs> I'm the person who needs to stop and help. Instead yeah. of actually stopping and helping mm-hmm. because you just don't have time. Mm-hmm. So what happens if you build an extra 10 minutes into your commute to work, then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you now have margin to be available to be the hands and feet of Jesus everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. And if you take that principle into every area of your life, most especially discipling your kids, Mm -hmm. it's expensive. Mm -hmm. Another way to pursue this practically is date your kids. Mm -hmm. This is something that we did as the kids were growing up, all through their growing up years, all the way into, I mean, Chris still dates our kids now that they're adults, especially Mm -hmm. our girls. He'll take them out on dates. He dates kids. Kate, too. Takes her to coffee. Yeah. (laughs) And those dates are such beautiful times of deposits. And and especially for mother-son or father-daughter combos, um, there's something really beautiful that happens when you take them out on a date that... Not only do you bond in a different way than you do when you're going just through the daily motions, but you also get a chance to talk about things that really are meaningful and valuable. I cannot overstate the payoff that will happen if you date your kids. We had four kids and it was just a matter of working our way through the list and cycling back and just having a rotation. And it wasn't a schedule, but it was Mm -hmm. definitely this process. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't per se 
you weren't pretty rigid like no it's just they had the order obviously they just they just knew yeah opportunity that (laughs) yeah came up yeah Yeah. but for some families it would work well to be regimented (laughs) (laughs) right yeah Yeah, you you guys are like sorry this month only has four weeks (laughs) one of you is out of luck Okay, so this this week is kind of our our final week of really focusing on big picture. And even though we have brought some more of the the practicals in, next week we'll really turn a corner and start to dig into practical things of discipline and how to bring discipline in the home to our kids' hearts, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted us to kind of end our big picture with the Father's mandate. Now when we taught this class and it was the 14 week class, <laughs> we would spend a whole week just talking about dads because we feel like it's so, so crucial. So I want to have Chris share just about the father's mandate. Okay. Yeah, what my yeah. yeah. Going back to child wise, uh, Gary Ezzo focused one chapter on something that he called the father's mandate, which has a huge impact on me and was very challenging and also encouraging. Mm-hmm for me as a dad. And I actually, for 15 years, I kept a little photo size card in my wallet that had the eight mandates in it. I'll send them to you guys. So you don't need to worry about writing them down unless you prefer. Those eight mandates are number one, a father must cultivate a sense of family identity. This is so important that it comes from the dad. Because it's the dad that needs to build that sense of, this is our family. This is what we do. This is what we look like. And it's not that mom's input on that is not important. It's just that dad can drive the family's enthusiasm about whether or not we're all on board. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it's just a matter of, let's say you're in the car driving somewhere and you just see an opportunity to just come out with it. The Ball family is the best family. I'm so glad that we have this family. This is the best. You know, and just building that up and talking positively about your family so that your kids start to have this idea of, oh, yeah, this is a great family. (laughs) Because, because again, they're just lost in the weeds, right? And everybody's everybody and kids are kids and they have their own home and family Mm -hmm. and whatever. And all of a sudden you're calling out something for them to think through, which is... Mm -hmm. We have a great family. We really do have a great family. Mm -hmm. All right, number two, a father must regularly demonstrate love for his wife. This is huge. And this is one of the reasons why date night is so incredibly important, especially when you have high-need kids or kids going through a very clingy age and they're screaming and crying as you're going out of the door. (laughs) They need it more than the others. (laughs) That's your opportunity to say, I love you with all my heart. And that's why I'm taking mommy on a date right now. We don't need to go into this too much, but obviously the principle here is that the best thing that you can give your kids is a solid marriage. I don't know if you guys have heard of couch time, but... It's that idea of when dad walks in the door from work, the first 15 minutes are mom's. So he sets his stuff aside. He gets a drink of water, changes his clothes, go to the bathroom, whatever he needs to do. And then those first 15 minutes are mom's on the couch. Why on the couch? Because all the kids see a physical demonstration of mom and dad having quality time together first and foremost as a priority in the family. This is critical, and it has to do with prioritizing. And so you'll have your kid, well, do you love mommy more than you love me? And the answer is, no, I love you just as much as mommy, but I loved mommy first. Mm -hmm. So daddy's going to spend time with mommy first, and then we'll play together. Mm -hmm. Again, that's just a little tangible tool tips, strategies, and tools. It's a tool of how to demonstrate physically for your kids, even your teens, right? No, your crisis is not more important than me loving mom right now tangibly in this moment. 
Number three, a father must respect his child's private world. This actually really challenged me as a dad because I came from a paradigm of, I have a right to know everything you're thinking right now. And there were times where I felt indignant if my kids didn't tell me something that they were holding in their heart. If we have time, we can open up this a little bit more later, but I think that it's a little bit self-explanatory. As a dad, you need to be mindful and respectful of that private world and not be demanding. The difference between a window opening and you forcing your way inside the house. Number four, a father must give his children the freedom to fail. Mm. Super important. I would take it a little bit further. A father must provide opportunities for his kids to fail because of how valuable those lessons are and how much you can love on them and cheer them back up on the horse. Number five, fathers need to be the encourager of the family. It's tied very much to identity, but it doesn't matter your personality. You need to be the one who helps set the tone Mm -hmm. for uplifting the family, bringing positive activities in the family, attitudes, Mm -hmm. etc. Words of life. Yeah. Number six, fathers must guard their tongue and their tone and learn to measure their response against the excitement on a child's face. Mm. This was really difficult for me. The idea is your child has just experienced something that's exciting or new and you are focusing on something that they've screwed up. A lot of times for me it would be, I thought I told you that you can't, you know, do such and such without washing your hands or whatever it is. And I'm missing the story, missing the excitement. Mm -hmm. And there's a time to bring the correction, a time to set them straight on the approach or whatever. But in that moment, they have this excitement and this enthusiasm, and you need to watch for that. Mm-hmm. Number seven, fathers need to demonstrate loving touch to their children. This was easy for us. We're a very physical, physical family. family. If it's not easy for you, break through those habits that you have and be touchy-feely with your kids. This is especially important when they're teens, especially with daughters. So dads, that's when we tend to back off because it becomes a little bit awkward and it's like, give me a hug. Well, actually, let's just shake hands. Um, Fist bump. (laughs) Fist bump. And that's actually the time they need it most. Mm -hmm. You need to break through that awkwardness Mm -hmm. and be loving in a very physical way, Mm -hmm. in a very tangible way. Squeeze them, rub them on the head, whatever. Kiss them, dude. And they need that daddy love, especially in those years. And lastly, number eight, a father must build his relationship with his child on God's truth and not man's wisdom, which is what we've kind of been talking about all through the night. Recommended books. Recommended books. One of our favorite resources of all time, Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. Fabulous book. The next book after that, that is like the companion book, Instructing a Child's Heart. Foundational. I can't say enough about those two books. Littles to Middles. Fantastic series. Mm. Family Night Tool Chest. We use these all through our kids growing up. These are more for littles to middles again, but the idea is creating a every other week, once a month, weekly, however often you want to do it, family night where you actively engage in family activities together and you don't do anything else. It's family night. These are fun, fun books. Fabulous ideas. We could talk about some of the ideas sometime had big impacts on our kids. Mm-hmm. Clay and Sally Clarkson, one of my all-time favorite combo duo authors. This is a fabulous book for homeschoolers, but it just deals with affecting your kid's heart through discipleship. This is particularly through the venue of homeschooling. So this is Clay and Sally together, educating a child's heart. This was my biggest go-to resource as far as homeschooling goes. Then she wrote... Um, a couple of books that were absolutely paradigm shifting for me. The Ministry of Motherhood and The Mission of Motherhood. Amazing books by Sally Clarkson, which I must have given them away because I cannot find them anywhere on my bookshelf. 